Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today's interview is part two of our two-part interview with Thomas Immel. Thomas is an assistant research physicist at the Space Sciences Laboratory at UC Berkeley. In April of this year, NASA selected the Ionospheric Connection Explorer, known as ICON, to be the next heliophysics explorer satellite mission. The ICON mission is to be led by the Space Sciences Laboratory at UC Berkeley. Thomas Immel is the principal investigator of the ICON mission. ICON will be providing NASA's heliophysics division with a powerful new capability to determine the conditions in space modified by weather on the planet and to understand the way space weather events grow to envelop regions of our planet with dense ionospheric plasma. In today's interview, Dr. Immel talks in detail about the ICON Explorer. He gets into the instruments that will be on the ICON, what they hope to learn from the mission, the schedule for the project, and the orbit they hope to achieve, and what will happen to the data they collect. On to the interview. NASA has recently selected the Space Sciences Lab to do ICON, and congratulations are in order. Do you want to describe the ICON project and how that's come together? Yeah, well, thanks. It's been a long process. It was sort of a glimmer in our eye when we first were discovering these things about the coupling of the atmosphere and the ionosphere we've, I've talked about and how it's much stronger than we ever expected and structured and variable and basically at some point was unexplainable. And when we devised the mission, we wanted a mission that would measure not one particular thing, but it would measure each of the key parameters of the system that you need to, to put together to understand what's driving the system and how is the system responding. So this was the design for ICON and a little bit more fleshed out on our website, which is icon.ssl.berkeley.edu. Explain what ICON stands for, too. Ionospheric Connection Explorer. It's one of these things where you come up with an acronym and it sounds so good, then later on you've tried to figure out what it meant. And so we were close, but I came up with ICON and with some discussions we improved it and we basically just simplified it to Ionospheric Connection. And it seemed to make a it – it told – it says what we want to say. Ionosphere Connection Explorer because we are in the Explorer line. But Icon X didn't sound – it was too long, so it's just Icon. So you have to pitch this to NASA, right? Right. And so you have to verify that all your instruments are going to work and think what's the process of getting – you have the idea, but then there's more to it than that, obviously. In this mode – NASA has some different modes of missions. They have one where, this is our mission. Tell us what instruments you want to put on it, and we'll talk to you maybe. 
and they select your instruments, and then you're on for the ride. And the instruments have to meet some requirements and so forth. In this case, it's up to the PI, the principal investigator, to select the right instruments for the science, to clearly define the science goals and the requirements for the instruments and demonstrate that the instruments meet those requirements. So that's the mode we're working in. So it helps to have previously flown instruments that have demonstrated capability. If you don't have an exact replica of an instrument or you're doing some new changes to an instrument design, then you have to model and predict how the instrument is going to behave on orbit and its capability and show them how much margin you have in your current design. So, for instance, we need to know how the plasma is moving in space at all times with accuracy of 5 meters per second. And we have a capability of 3 meters per second, so we have some 60% margin on that value. Do they believe it? Well, we're flying basically a copy of that instrument right now that has that capability. Or it would have that capability if they had the pointing capability on the current spacecraft that it's flying on. There's a little bit of pointing control and knowledge that we're going to be able to provide better than maybe the last one. So you have to roll all these things in. You know, you have to have the instrument providers talking and knowledgeable of the capability of the spacecraft. You need the spacecraft to know those requirements of the instruments. Well, you said you need pointing like this, but do you need pointing for three seconds or three minutes or three hours? And so you have to facilitate a lot of conversations and a lot of discussion and the the principal investigator. and, And basically it's a systems engineering problem through and through, and you need a great system engineering look, and you need systems engineers in each department talking to each other with the overarching system engineer on the project and making sure that everyone's messages are being conveyed and everything's being captured in your requirements. Pitching it to NASA, yeah, we've been through this now twice. This is our second time around. When we weren't selected the first time, everyone said, well, it takes twice, so don't worry about it. Well, it was, it was no fun, but we did it twice, and so luckily... I don't have to sit here and say third time's a charm. Uh, We're really pleased to be able to do this now, and we think we have a great concept. How much changed between the first and the second approach to NASA? Well, we added some capability. We added some real capability to spin the spacecraft very quickly to make measurements here and there. We enhanced the capability of the spacecraft, basically, to support a number of different experimental modes that we wanted to be able to perform that the original spacecraft didn't actually have. So we want to spin the whole thing in three minutes. The whole spacecraft has to spin like a top in three minutes to capture the atmosphere moving in this way and then moving in that way. We want it all. So the new spacecraft's got that. It's got a lot more power. To go with that, you need more power. You need bigger, bigger solar panels to meet your margins on meeting your science goals. We brought on new team members. We added Naval Research Lab. They're great partners in science and are really one of the original places in the United States for investigations of the upper atmosphere and ionosphere. It's uh, nice to have them on board. They have a great wind instrument for imaging. We can image the wind, which is really cool. Our guest today is Thomas Immel. In the next segment, Thomas talks about the ICON instruments and what the project scientists hope to learn from ICON. This is KALX Berkeley. Are there any interesting stories in terms of getting the instruments fleshed out? Testing, uh, design. 
two instruments coming from Berkeley and two from other institutions, UT Dallas and Naval Research Lab. Each instrument is different. The Naval instrument coming from Naval Research Lab is a Michelson interferometer. And Michelson invented the interferometer to prove that the Earth was not moving through an ether back in 1903. So it's not a new instrument. But don't tell NASA it's not a new instrument. <laughs> it's a Michelson, guys. Come on. But they took a very close look at that. It's a very new implementation of a Michelson that's been proven on the ground and proven in space, actually, but in a little different way that it was used in space previously. Uh, the UV instruments, one is an astronomical instrument that was created to measure one photon at a time, which we have a lot more photons now. So we got to take off the whole back-end electronics that made sure that every photon was actually a photon. Uh, we don't need that anymore, I'm happy to say, because it was massive. We just have the front end of the spectrograph, and it's a beautiful little instrument. The far ultraviolet instrument, which is a little different, is an imager, and it's a near copy of the one we flew on image, which was the imager we used to make the original observation of the variability in the ionosphere. And again, the UT Dallas instrument has been flown, I don't know, 20 times. You like to have no interesting stories with your instruments whatsoever, so I'm sorry to say. What's interesting is that, you know, it was getting all these instruments that had a lot of heritage, had a lot of experience on orbit, and putting them in the same place at the same time, giving them enough power, and putting them in the right directions, and designing the science mission to support this. The interesting thing is the magnetic field at the low latitudes constrains the plasma, controls the plasma. At low latitudes where we're going, we're flying out of Florida and we'll never come that far north again. Uh, we're going to do a little burn to get to lower latitudes, not too low. Uh, we can still operate it from Space Sciences Lab at Berkeley with our dish. We'll still be able to see it in the sky. We're on the magnetic field that we're measuring every... So we're measuring the motion of the plasma on the magnetic field and we're measuring the winds and the conductivity all along the magnetic field. The winds of the neutral atmosphere and the conductivity of the ionosphere that together control the electric fields that are generated in the low-latitude dynamo. There's a dynamo. It's like a motor where you take a conductor and you run it through a magnetic field. You get a current. So we're on that magnetic field, and we're measuring the processes occurring along that magnetic field that drive the currents at low latitudes. So putting together that mission concept was actually the interesting part for us and deciding what altitude we had to be at, what inclination, what's the best trade-off for measuring those atmospheric tides which are extensive, and being right at the magnetic equator where you'd like to spend quite a bit of time making these coupled measurements. Within those discussions, do you rely more on what you know about what's happening, or is it blue sky and you're thinking about, what are we going to find out? Hmm, I see. That's a good question. So depending on who you talk to, we know a lot about the ionosphere and its interaction with the thermosphere. But we have no idea why it changes so much from day to day. And one of the reasons we think we really don't have a handle on that is because we don't have a good measurement of the driver, of where that energy is, and most of that energy is in the atmosphere. So we think that the key to understanding the variability in the atmosphere is to measure that driver first while you're measuring the response of the ionosphere. So we're measuring the neutral winds first, the, the motion of the atmosphere. But also key to that is you know, how much plasma is on that field line. How much of an electric field are you generating by pushing that plasma across the magnetic field with that wind? So you need to measure the ionosphere at the same time. There's an overarching belief that the neutral wind is really important, but why is it important? Is it because of the neutral wind pushing the plasma around? 
and suppressing it, keeping it down, or blowing it up? Or is it the electric field that comes from the dynamo action itself of the neutral wind pushing the plasma around? Or is it something to do with the temperatures that vary from, you know, this large temperature variability that comes with the tides that can affect the whole upper atmosphere and change how the plasma recombines, how it settles at night, and change the composition of the upper atmosphere? One thing I didn't talk about is how in the upper atmosphere the different species separate. So the heavy stuff, like N2, basically sits at the bottom of the upper atmosphere, but atomic oxygen becomes a dominant species. And as you go up in altitude, the ratio of oxygen to nitrogen changes. And that's not something that happens anywhere else below 100 kilometers. So there's a number of things that can control the ionosphere. And I guess where you'd like to be is being able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. And if there is a key parameter that you could save yourself some time and going out and measuring, instead of flying ICON again, you would fly, say, a constellation measuring one thing then we should be able to inform that process and inform the next mission or the next space weather mission that's trying to capture the most important parameter for predicting the conditions in the ionosphere. Uh, you may be able to reduce your set of measurements. We are carrying two interferometers, for instance. We're measuring the east-west and the north-south wind. Well, one of them might make no difference whatsoever, and you just need to carry one. And gosh, you know, it's really, really bright, and you only need to measure this part of it. So maybe your requirements aren't so strict as what ICON had to carry. You carry a smaller instrument with a smaller detector and a smaller aperture. So there's some things that we can inform in the future. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest today is Thomas Immel. In the next segment, Thomas talks about the ICON project integration, presenting the data, and how long ICON will remain on orbit. And so how long is the project going to take, the construction side of it, before you launch? We're looking at a a three-and-a-half-year development, so a year of design, and then NASA takes a strong interest in us from now on. We've been at arm's length for this whole time. Since it's been a competitive selection, we haven't really had any time to talk to NASA about what do you really, what do you think, what is this going to work, how are you guys going to like this. You know, we just have to say everything that we think is needed and prepare the way we think and also how NASA's requirements cause us to work, do our best job to put together a NASA mission. Uh, Now we're going to be finally working with NASA very closely on this. So um, we have a year of design and then two and a half years of build, which gets us onto this launch vehicle we had planned for a late 2016. I'm seeing signs that we're probably going to slip to 2017, so our launch in 2017 is what we're currently planning. But we haven't had our first discussions with NASA yet. They're getting their marbles together, and we are too, and we're going to meet later this month and start planning for the future but uh, we should be launching in 2017. The other instruments are going to be built at Texas Naval Research Yep. and here at the Space Sciences Lab. And then how do you integrate? Is that so far out in the distance that you're not there yet? No, we're, we'll integrate here. So the spacecraft has a payload plate where we'll integrate all the instruments on the plate and deliver the instruments all at one time as one unified payload with one interface. So we will also build a box that 
talks to all the instruments, that knows what their outputs are, that interfaces to each of them. So along with our delivery of the instruments to Orbital Sciences, who's our spacecraft provider, we'll deliver an interface box. So that'll actually go on their side. It'll mount on the spacecraft. But our side is just the payload plate. And uh, we'll do that at Space Sciences Lab. And do you end up publishing papers as a result of this, or is it really just uh, making all the data available? With something that we've invested a lot of work and time into, the old bad old days that you would sit on your data and never release it and publish all the papers and take all the credit. And NASA doesn't support that model anymore. All of our data have to be supplied freely and openly within 30 or 60 days. I forget the exact requirement. And so we'll be helping all these other investigators as well get into the data. So our job is to make the data as plain as possible. What I'm really interested in doing is how to visualize those data so someone can download, say, a movie or a, some other tool that would really give them, or Google Earth, click here and you show up in Google Earth and you can spin around the planet and look at things the way you want to look at them and instead of writing particular software. I mean, a lot of people don't want to write any software, want to have a look at the data and, th- and probably make some headway before getting too deeply into analysis just by having a good view of what you've got. So we'll be providing a number of tools to let people do that. I envision a lot of papers coming out of uh, from these data, and me, yes, I'll be involved in that. Our team, a number of co-investigators, a lot of professors around the U.S. at Colorado and Illinois, for instance, and at Cornell, to make the best sense we can of our observations, given our immediate knowledge of what the spacecraft was doing, its capability, the uncertainties of the measurements, and so forth. So, certainly expect to be involved in that. It's been a little bit of a lull in my publication career working on this mission over the past few years, but I think that's going to change as soon as we get on orbit. I'm really looking into, looking forward to uh, just the other day I was writing some code again. It felt fantastic. <laughs> you know, I've been writing Word documents for many years now, and it's just been great to get back into some data. And so I really look forward to having the data from this mission as well. And how long will ICON fly? We have a two-year mission that we've proposed. Most heliophysics missions do go into an extended phase. You usually find things that are new and exciting or find other collaborations you'd like to do or other science you'd like to science goals that you might like to achieve in another two years. So we'll have that capability to extend as well, but we actually don't have any fuel on the spacecraft, so we'll be coming home probably 12 or 15 years. Uh, we started 550-kilometer altitude circular orbit. It's a nice, stable orbit, but eventually it'll be coming back. But that's, that's the long term. The short term is to get up and do our two-year mission and then talk about the future. But we will be on orbit for a decade. And in terms of coming back to Earth, do you have to plot out when and how that'll happen as best you can? Or is that a randomness to the whole thing? The only control you have is on the how you camp the solar panels possibly to try to control its reentry. And in our case, it'll be uncontrolled reentry. Uh, you need a rocket to take you home if you're going to say it's controlled. But what we have shown is that everything's going to burn up. Once you crash into the lower atmosphere again, you end up burning up everything, all the aluminum and, and all the gear and all the glass. It does burn up, so it doesn't pose a hazard to any people. Right, anything below. And, and the chances of running into something else up there... It's something that will be predictable. Uh, At the time. Yes. 
you literally you could camp the solar panels in a wrong direction for a while, stop science ops, and for a week do something with your solar panels or see if the guys you're going to fly into are interested in not colliding. Maybe they have some fuel. For instance, the space station. I don't see any uh, – there's a lot of space in space. Uh, although There's a lot of junk too. There's a lot of junk and we're more concerned about that than ever. We're almost to that point, right, where it's just going to start growing no matter what we do. So we don't want to contribute to that. Everything attached to ICON will be coming home in 15 years. We're not allowed to contribute to the problem. Thomas Immel, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Okay. Thank you very much. Good luck with ICON. Thanks. We're getting going. We'll have you back after. That would be great. Or right. along the way maybe. Well, Here's some horror stories. <laughs> well, every mission has some terrifying moments, so I know that. At least I know that now. We look forward to that development, though, and it's going to be a great mission for Berkeley and for NASA. Thanks again. Thank you. The Icon Explorer mission website is icon.ssl.berkeley.edu. A few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao join me for the calendar. As part of the second international biannual evolution and cancer conference, UCSF is hosting a free public lecture at 7 p.m. tonight in the Robertson Auditorium on their Mission Bay campus. Popular science writer Carl Zimmer will pose the question, is cancer a Darwinian demon? After his talk, science rapper Baba Brinkman will perform selections from The Rap Guide to Evolution and a preview of his forthcoming Rap Guide to Medicine. For more information, visit cancer.ucsf.edu. Tomorrow, the Science at Cal Lecture Series will hold its June talk, a discussion by the Berkeley professor Mariska Krieg about the two types of galaxies in the known universe. While most consider galaxies, as the building blocks of the universe, to be incredibly diverse, Professor Creek divides them into two broad types, those that make new stars and those that don't. Professor Creek will discuss her reasons for making the distinctions and theories over how the differences originated. The speech will begin tomorrow at 11 a.m. in room 100 of the Genetics and Plant Biology Building on the northwest corner of the UC Berkeley campus. Hal Luongo from the New York Botanical Garden, is giving a three-hour introduction to Botanical Latin at the UC Berkeley Botanical Garden, located at 200 Centennial Drive, on June 22nd. Learn the names for plants and the way the names are constructed from Latin and Greek. He'll also give simple rules of thumb to pronounce plant names with confidence. Admission is $30. Register online at botanicalgarden.berkeley.edu. June 27th is the Exploratorium's Thursday night adults-only program featuring two physicists discussing the prodigious and startling theoretical leaps and the epic experimental program that produced the monumental discovery of the Higgs boson. 
The physicists will be Maria Spiropoulou, Ph.D., an experimental physicist from CERN, and Joanne Hewitt, Ph.D., a theoretical physicist from Stanford Linear Accelerator. The 7.30 p.m. lecture is included with museum admission and will have limited seating. In the discussion, Spiropoulou and Hewitt will also explore the implications discovering the Higgs has for future inquiries in physics. Beyond shedding light on the way elementary particles acquire mass, understanding the Higgs mechanism will likely push the frontiers of fundamental science towards a greater understanding of our universe. June 27th at the Exploratorium in San Francisco at 7.30 p.m. of Spectrum is to present news stories that we find interesting. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao present the news. A team of researchers led by Lawrence Berkeley National Lab's Paulo Montero has analyzed a slab of concrete that has drifted in the Mediterranean Sea for the past 2,000 years. The ancient Roman slab proved to be more durable than most of today's concretes, as well as more sustainably made. The creation process of modern Portland cement usually requires temperatures of up to 2,642 degrees Fahrenheit, and the fossil fuels burned to reach that temperature are responsible for 7% of industry carbon emissions worldwide. The composition of the Roman slab is such that it can be baked at only 1,652 degrees Fahrenheit, which would require far less fuel making the production of Roman concrete both greener and less expensive. The older concrete uses ash from volcanic regions in the Gulf of Naples that can be reacted with lime and seawater to create mortar. Chemically similar ash, known as polizon, can still be found in many parts of the world today. While currently there are few green concretes that do use ash in their manufacturing process, this lab has provided the industry with concrete proof of the long-term performance of ash-based cement. The elusive Electron orbitals of the hydrogen atom have been observed directly. Anita Stadolna at the FOM Institute for Atomic and Molecular Physics in Amsterdam, Mark Vracking at the Max Born Institute in Berlin, and their colleagues published these findings in Physical Review Letters on May 20th. The team implemented photoionization microscopy, first proposed theoretically over 30 years ago. They used UV lasers to excite electrons in an atom placed in an electric field. These photoelectrons went through electromagnetic lenses, which focused them onto a CCD detector. By collecting tens of thousands of electrons, the team mapped the shape of the orbitals. This May, UC Berkeley's Essig Museum of Entomology opened a new citizen science project known as CalBug. The museum has begun posting high-resolution photos of its more than 1 million specimens and accompanying field notes to the CalBug website, where anyone with an interest in the bugs can transcribe the original handwritten information about the specimen's origins and collection. 
The project is an effort to digitize terrestrial arthropod specimen records with a focus on those hailing from California. The CalBug science team will then use the newly digitized data to assess how insects have responded to climate change and habit modification over time. The museum began the project in collaboration with eight other California museums in 2010 after realizing that cataloging their vast collection would be impossible with their small staff. The resulting website, known as Notes from Nature, hosts the CalBug project, as well as herbarium and ornithological collections also waiting to be classified. You can take a look at the collections and perhaps start transcribing at notesfromnature.org. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes University. The link to the archive is incomprehensible, so we created a short link for you. That link is tinyurl.com slash calexspectrum, all one word. That's tinyurl.com slash calexspectrum. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.